0: Sponsored by the Law Office of Robert Bergman.
1: Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, attorney Bob Bergman.
2: Welcome and good afternoon. I hope you're all having a great Friday afternoon here in the Bay Area. It's not too warm for you. I'm broadcasting live today from my office in San Jose near the Westgate Shopping Center. Don't believe in being downtown because it's hard to find, hard to park, and hard to get around. Uh, My office is easy to find, easy to park, and easy to get around. So if you are interested in scheduling a consultation to meet with me at some point to talk about estate planning issues for you and your family, you can always go to my website at com where it's possible to book A consultation with me directly through my website. There's no charge for consultations. You can also call me today if you'd like. I'd be happy to take calls on the air and answer your questions on the air. 800 516 1220. That's 800 516 1220. You can also email me at any time at radio at lawbob.com, L A W B O B.com. You can ask questions that you'd like to have answered on the air at some point, or you can just uh, request a copy of my California Consumer Guide to Wills Living Trusts and Estate Planning, available free. I'd be happy to uh, email one out to you right away if you email request to me. Now, continuing on with the shows that I've been doing in in recent weeks, I'm going to continue on now with uh, more questions and comments from various sites I have found around the state of California where people like you and me are asking questions of attorneys like me that deal with specific estate planning issues that they're facing or the families facing. I have uh, gotten feedback from some people already that these these particular situations that I cover on the show are very helpful because, for one thing, it lets people know that they're not alone maybe in the situation they're facing, that there's other people that are facing similar situations in their lives, and maybe it's not so unique that it can't be dealt with. So let me jump right in with the first segment here and talk about a few kind of simple ones to answer, but that may come up now and then. This person wanted to know um, their sister wishes to resign as a co-trustee over the trust, and um, want to know do you have to record a resignation of trustee document or does it just have to be notarized or are there any other forms required well a resignation should probably be notarized just so you have some independent verification that the resignation was actually signed by the person resigning it doesn't really have to be recorded except to the extent that if someone is a co-trustee on real estate here in California or elsewhere, they might want to actually record the resignation in the uh, county where the real estate is owned and specifically reference the property or properties that are covered by the resignation. Because effectively, if someone resigns as the trustee over property, real estate that's owned, It is actually a change of the trustee. There's a form that can be prepared called an affidavit of change of trustee that could be filed by the trustee resigning or by the trustee that's remaining, where it's indicated that this person is resigning as the trustee and that they're no longer uh, on the title of the property as a trustee. So that might be a good thing to do so that if you are, in fact, resigning, Your name isn't still showing up on paperwork everywhere. Probably also want to notify any bank or other financial institution that you've resigned as the trustee and request that your name be removed as someone who's authorized on those accounts. Now, closely related is this question that comes out of Southern California. Wants to know, um, do I need to register a living trust? And if I do, where do I do that? Someone told me a living trust must be registered in order to be legal. Well, first of all, you you don't really register a living trust anywhere. Um, they're, They're private documents. Typically, the only ones who know what's in a living trust are the people who created it, the people in charge of it, and maybe the attorney that was involved in the drafting. Family members might know if the information was shared, but you don't really register a living trust anywhere, so... That's just to put that to rest. It's a private document. It's really not meant to be recorded anywhere. Now here, this is a situation that I'm sure is going to affect at least somebody listening today. This person from Southern California indicated, I have two children by two different dads that I did not marry. I stand to inherit a large estate when my mother passes. I have a trust which will distribute my assets to my kids or designated charities if they die before me. When they die, how best can we protect the family estate from their fathers? Should each of my children have a separate trust or can I create a different trust that holds the money after I die until they also die or the money runs out? Excellent questions here. What this mother is describing is what I call castle trust planning in my estate practice. It involves leaving property to children, not directly, but leaving it in trust for them, maybe with somebody else in charge of it if they're underage, maybe with them in charge of it as they get older and more responsible, but then also specifically providing where that property goes when the child dies, it could also explicitly exclude any father of that child from ever being someone who could receive anything from those trusts that were set up for the children. Uh, that is called disinheritance. And this mom could make sure that those fathers of her children um, are disinherited from anything that she leaves to them if she leaves it to them in trust and doesn't give them the ability to change where that property is ultimately going to go. So I call that castle trust planning. It's an advanced planning technique and it's something that the vast majority of will and trust lawyers who are general practitioners don't really know how to do. If that's something that would be of interest to you, please feel free to give me a call or email me or else uh, schedule a free estate planning consultation through my website. I think you'll find that uh, I can answer those questions for you and help your family with a situation like this woman has from Southern California. Now here's a quick one before the break that's coming up real soon. Here it says, The trustee's unaware how to handle the trust in her duties. She's run up a bill with the attorney because of this and wants to pay him out of the trust funds. Can she do this? Well, the short answer is yes. If a trustee needs any kind of professional assistance in discharging their responsibilities as a trustee, then the only person to really look to to pay for that, not person res- mainly, but the only place to look to pay for that should be the trust that the trustee's handling. shouldn't come out of the trustee's personal funds. Uh, They're basically an employee of the trust. So with the trustee being an employee of the trust, using trust monies for the purpose of determining what needs to be done and how to handle the trust, how to do accounting, how to uh, sell property, anything, that is an ordinary expense of the trustee to pay for that, to pay for for professional advice. Now, when I come back after the break, I'm going to be covering several more issues that have arisen around the state of california uh, please feel free to uh, call if you'd like to go on the air 800-516-1220 or email me at radio at lawbob.com with your questions or comments so after the break we'll be coming back until then this is attorney bob bergman talk with you after the break
1: This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW.
2: Hi, I'm back. This is Attorney Bob Bergman with a second segment of our show today. I want to let you all know that uh, I will be actually having one of my Living Trust seminars in my office Tomorrow morning, that is uh, Saturday, the 21st of July. It will be starting at 9 o'clock. I will tell you, though, that you you shouldn't just show up at my office. Uh, my office is at uh, 1777 Saratoga Avenue, Suite 208 in San Jose. To register for the seminar, which is what you need to do, go to my website at lawbob.com, follow the links where it says register for live living trust or retirement plan trust seminar that will take you into eventbrite where you can register and make sure that you actually get a space for the seminar space is very limited i can only take about a dozen people at a time for my seminars so if you'd like to come meet me and hear me talk live about living trust planning avoiding conservatorship and probate and also Castle Trust Planning that I talked about a bit in the first segment. Uh, Feel free to come to my office, but you need to register first because space is limited. Moving on, uh, more questions and comments. Here's a kind of a simple one out of Bakersfield. Someone said, I've made several amendments to my trust, and rather than make another one, I'd like to start from scratch. Are there any legal ramifications? Well, first of all, there are no legal ramifications if you want to start over, but there's some practical ones. The practical ones being that if you start over all over again, you're going to have to go back every place that you have titled something in the name of your original trust, and you're going to have to change those. Real estate, bank accounts, brokerage accounts, If you've named your trust as a beneficiary on something like life insurance or a retirement plan, all those kinds of things, you'd have to change that again. The more direct solution is to do what's called an amendment and restatement. And what that would do is you take your original trust, you take all the changes that you made, and you do a brand new trust document that incorporates all the changes that you made from those earlier amendments so that the new trust document is completely integrated and has everything in it that you want into effect now. And then that becomes an amendment but it also becomes a restatement, meaning that you're restating or redoing the entire original trust document. That way you end up with a new trust document But you keep the old trust name and the old trust date, which means that all of your property that's titled in that original trust doesn't have to be changed. That's my practice, and I think it's the best practice in the estate planning community. Okay, so here, oh, yeah, that's kind of an interesting one. When a co-trustee of a trust resigns, leaving only one trustee remaining, Do you have to do an amendment to the trust, and does it have to be filed? So here's the situation. This person is trying to open a bank account for a trust, but the bank won't let them because there are two co-trustees. So one of the trustees has resigned as a co-trustee, but now the bank says we have to amend the trust. Now here, it sounds like this is a trust that was set up where these uh, these co-trustees were handling it for someone else's benefit or after a parent died. So what's happening, this person is trying to deposit funds from the sale of property that was in the trust into an account that's owned by the trust. They said they'd only allow one of us to be on the account, so the other one resigned, but now they're saying you have to amend the trust. My short response to all this is, go to another bank this bank sounds like it doesn't know what the heck it's talking about this trust is probably an irrevocable trust which means it cannot be amended in any way without a court order at this time and uh, and bank accounts can have multiple trustees on them all in fact all the time what the bank might be saying is that only it only takes one signature to sign on the account We can't require to have two or more signatures to do business. But if they're giving this much problem, if they're making it so hard for you to put money in their bank that they can then lend out to people and make money themselves, find another bank. That is actually advice I give to clients all the time when they're trying to deal with banks and deal with their trusts or accounts that are in their trust and they're getting all kinds of pushback from the bank. We as consumers have the right to go and do our banking business wherever we wish, which means we have the right to pull our banking relationships from a bank that's making life more difficult for us instead of easier for us, which is really what they should be doing. So if you're running into issues with a bank and they're not willing to work with you, my advice to you on the air and my advice to my clients in person is, consider going to another bank that's willing to work with you and do the things that you need to have done. Now here, here's a question that's kind of closely related to um, one from earlier in the show. Can a trust provide for a testamentary trust for an adult child? This person says, I want to protect my child's inheritance and eventually my grandchildren's from my child's husband. I don't have faith in him, but she doesn't see the problem. Drugs, alcohol, gambling. If you've been to one of my seminars, you know I talk about this as an issue with a beneficiary who may not really be competent to handle their inheritance. But here we have the husband of the potential beneficiary that's in a similar situation. So can a trust provide for a testamentary trust for an adult child, or does it have to be created by a will? This is the perfect situation to create a castle trust after your death for this child's inheritance, so that it's separate from the child's personal life, personal finances, and this relationship with the husband who apparently has a drug problem, alcohol problem, and a gambling problem, and I'd go one step further because the child doesn't see the issues with her own husband. As the parent, I might want to put somebody else in charge like a professional trustee or responsible family member or family members to be the trustee or trustees over the inheritance for my child. I don't care if my child's an adult, if they're financially incompetent, or, if they're unable or unwilling to see the issues in their lives that, that not that are not being dealt with, I would want somebody else to be in charge of that inheritance, so my child doesn't end up blowing it or giving it away to the spouse who then gambles it away, drinks it away, puts it down the throat or up the nose or in the arm, as I put it. I think that's very, very important. And uh, this is where I think a Castle Trust would make a lot of sense. So we're halfway through the show now. Uh, Feel free to give a call, 800-516-1220, if you'd like to talk on the air. But until then, I'll be coming back after the break with more questions and comments. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman with Plan Your Estate Radio. Talk with you after the break.
1: Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman.
2: Hi, welcome back. First of all, I want to repeat again I have a Living Trust seminar at my office tomorrow morning here in San Jose. You can go to lawbob.com and follow the links to register for the seminar. Uh, You need to register ahead of time because it's filling up fast and i can't guarantee that there'll be a space for you if you just show up tomorrow morning so uh go through register through my website make sure that you have a space available once it's full up there'll be no more registrations permitted for tomorrow but i do have another seminar coming up a week from tomorrow on 28th of july and you could register for that one if tomorrow morning doesn't work for you that one's already starting to fill up as well so Please, uh, register early, register often is my motto. Now, before the break, I was talking about um, a number of different questions and issues that have come up around the state, and I'm seeing um, more and more issues where people are concerned about an inheritance being passed on to the next generation and having it be protected from various predators that might come against it, predators such as a child's other parent who um, may be estranged from the child, uh, predators such as a child's spouse that is not the best person in the world, maybe even um, has addiction problems, maybe abusive, any other thing like that. So, kind of along those lines, uh, here's a question from someone from Northern California said, uh, I'm the sole owner listed on the deed to my property. And I want the transfer of the title of my property to my two children to be as seamless as possible when I eventually pass. I thought if I put them on the title as co-owners, it would make it easier. Now, I talk about this in the seminar. I talk about the issue of adding your children to the title of your home, to your bank accounts, to brokerage accounts, anything like that. And people who do that tend to put their children on the title as joint tenants. Joint tenants or joint tenants with right of survivorship, which is the more formal name for it, is a form of ownership that basically says that if you're a joint tenant with someone else on property, whether it's real property or a financial account, for example, that when one of you dies anyone else that's a joint tenant on that property receives equally the interest of the joint tenant that just died. Now, in this case, if this person puts the children on the title as joint tenants and then passes away, the children will receive the interest of the deceased parent by operation of law without having to go through the probate process. And it's very fast and very easy to clear the title into the names of the children. However, there are issues with joint tenancy. Probably first and foremost is, what if this parent survives one or both of the children? If that happens, you have not solved the problem of getting the property to the children or mainly to the children's children, the grandchildren, if that was what the ultimate intention is. Because if it's still back in the person's name because now they get it back because something happened to their children who passed away, then that means that you're still going to go through probate when you die. Real estate has a way of triggering probate, and that's a long, involved, costly, completely public court process that the vast majority of families really need to avoid going through. The other thing is by putting the children on the title of this house, this parent will have passed on to the children something called the cost basis in the house. This is an income tax concept. When you buy something like a house or a stock or a bond or a mutual fund, anything like that that's called a capital asset, if you sell it for more than what you paid for it, you have a taxable capital gain, which means you owe a special type of tax on the money that you made on that asset. Here in California, it's treated as ordinary income, so it increases your income for that taxable year, and you pay it your ordinary income tax rates. In the case of a house, if this person bought their house a long time ago, say for $100,000, and today it's worth $600,000, If they add their children to the title as joint tenants in order to make it easy for the children to receive the property when the parent dies, what will happen is two-thirds of the original acquisition cost will be passed on to the children and be considered their acquisition cost in the property. When the parent dies, only the parent's one-third joint tenancy interest will get revalued to current market value, for purposes of this capital gains tax, what that would mean is let me use some, maybe some different numbers that'll illustrate a little better. Property purchased for a hundred thousand dollars today, it's worth seven hundred, so the equity is six hundred thousand dollars. If the parent puts the two kids on the title, now each one of them has one third of the equity but each one of them also has one-third of the original acquisition cost. When the parent dies, assuming the parent dies first, the children will receive the property with the $100,000 original acquisition cost called the basis plus mom's $200,000, although it actually will be less than that for a reason I won't go into, but we'll just say $200,000. And then the other $400,000 will still stay as taxable gain for the children when they turn around and sell mom's house. If mom, on the other hand, owned the house 100% at death, the children receive it at 100% of its market value at death of the mother. And that means if they turn around and sell it for what it's worth at that time, they don't owe any capital gains tax. So... It's a simple question, but it's a complicated answer. I think the better answer for this person is to put the house into a trust that leaves the trust to the children, but also provides alternate distribution of that property if something happened to one or both of the children. Because otherwise, you could easily end up with the property in the probate process, which really should be avoided by people. Here's a simple one out of uh, Palmdale. <clears throat> there's a couple of parents who owned a house there in Southern California. Both parents are deceased. Uh, last parent died in 2016, and it's been over two years. There is a family trust. By that, I assume they mean there was a trust the parents had that owned this house. But there's a $12,000 lien on the house placed back in 2012. How do we, this is all the children, go about selling the house if possible? Don't know where to begin. Please help. Well, the short answer is, who is the trustee in charge of the trust now? Is it all of the children? Is it one of the children? The bottom line is the fact that the house has a lien against it, which would be evidence of a loan of some kind or else a judgment taken against one or both of the parents, that's $12,000. It could be a tax lien as well. They can just go and sell the property. Part of the sale in the escrow would be to determine how much is the lien that is owed, who is it to be paid to, get a payoff demand to whoever has the lien against the property, and then when the house sells and the escrow closes, the lien is paid off from the proceeds of the sale. So... That's a pretty straightforward one there. If they really have no idea what to do, they should probably go and consult with an estate planning attorney to give them some more specific advice on how to go about liquidating the property in this trust. Now here's one that a few years ago would have been more complicated, but now it's a little less complicated. This comes out of Oakland. And uh, this person is trying to save grandma's house that's been in the family for, if I'm looking at this correctly, 40 years. It's been a challenge to make it with a home that will not affect grandma's Medicaid benefits while she's in a nursing home. Grandma's been in a nursing home for eight years. Now, here's the problem that they're facing. Medicaid, by the way, is called Medi-Cal here in California. If the house is not in a trust right now, then it may be too late to do anything. A law change took place earlier this year that said if your personal residence is in a is in a trust of any kind, it is not subject to recovery from the state of California for any Medi-Cal benefits that were paid out on behalf of the owner of the house. Here, though, it's not in a trust right now. I don't know that it's even possible now even to go to court and have a trust set up to put the house in there and have it avoid any kind of medical recovery because that kind of thing needed to be done either before grandma went into a nursing home um, or by grandma... Um, well before she went into a nursing home. I don't know that the family can do anything now to fix that situation. Now, I have another one I want to cover, but it's going to take a little bit more than the time we have left in this segment. So let me just wrap up this segment by, again, inviting you into my office either tomorrow morning, the 21st, or next weekend, Saturday, the 28th, starting at 9 o'clock for my Living Trust Seminar. You can register by going through my website and clicking on the links for the live Living Trust Seminars. That will take you into Eventbrite where you can register. Please, if you want to come, register right now. Don't wait because these seminars have a tendency to fill up pretty quickly. So when we come back, we'll come back for the final segment of the show today. This is attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break.
1: Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning, trust, and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman.
2: Hi, welcome back for the final segment of our show today. Uh, Again, I'm having Living Trust Seminars tomorrow morning, Saturday the 21st, and next weekend the 28th in my office. You can visit lawbob.com for more information and to click through to register. Uh, Space is limited, so if you'd like to come, please feel free to register, and I'd love to see you at one of the seminars. I think you'd find it both informational and also entertaining. So as we wrap up today, let me talk about a few more of these situations that have arisen for people here in California. Uh, Here's kind of an interesting one. Um, Here's someone that says, My ex-fiancé and I share a 15-year-old son. He passed away and left his 401K and life insurance policy with no beneficiary listed or named. Company stated the funds are being sent to his probate estate and they won't provide the amounts to us. The fiancé was single, was never married. He does have two children, the one we share and another one with his recent girlfriend. Don't you just love situations like this? Um, Former fiancé, I'll tell you what, if he's single then what's likely to happen is there's going to be a probate for the 401k and the life insurance. And it's likely that if it can be proven that these children are, in fact, his children, they're likely going to be the ones that receive these funds, although it's possible that if his parents are still alive, they might receive the funds as well. I think the children actually have priority over his parents. But one of them is a 15-year-old, and the other one is a newer child, which means that in both cases, these monies are going to go into uh, probate, go through all the time and expense of that, then be turned over to guardianships, presumably being handled by the respective mothers, but that's not even necessarily clear or going to be the case. And then these children will actually get... Uh, get the inheritance from their now-deceased father as they turn age 18. All in all, bad result all the way around um, because no one that I've ever met really believes that an 18-year-old boy or girl should ever receive a substantial inheritance all at once. It's probably going to be spent. It's not going to be handled wisely. It's going to be treated like... A $5 bill found in the crosswalk uh, and picked up, and let's look for the nearest Starbucks to get ourselves a latte. That is tends to what be what happens to inheritances when they're received too young. It's treated as found money. So that's the likely result, though. It's going to end up going to the kids, and they'll get it when they turn age 18. Now, here's an entertaining one. I, when, when I read this, I went wow, this is kind of like a California bar examination question, maybe even an examination question for the specialist exam for estate planning. And uh, here's the situation. Property was transferred into a living trust with a grant deed. Didn't have a full legal description. Doesn't state the property address on the description indicates the wrong city where the property is located. The notary acknowledgement is not checked how the signers appeared in front of the notary, and it was recorded a month after the actual execution date, plus the wrong tax code transfer exemption into the living trust. It was the wrong one that was given, and the question is, is the deed valid? From all of that, The only real issue that I see in there, um, the notary acknowledgement, it depends. um, I mean, if it was, in fact, notarized and the proper language is there, regardless of whether there's a little checkbox that was checked, um, that's going to be fine. Recording a month after the execution date, that's not unusual at all. Uh, There's no requirement it be recorded on the same date that it's signed. Having the wrong tax code transfer information, eh, that's a thats a little bit funny. I don't know that a, a recorder's office would have an issue with that as long as it's clear that it's a transfer into a living trust. Even if you had the wrong number, they know what the right number is. But the real problem is if it doesn't have a correct legal description and identifies the wrong city, The incorrect legal description is probably the major problem. If it doesn't properly describe the property, maybe has the next door property, legal description, something like that, it probably did not successfully transfer this property into the living trust. Now, if the person who did this is still alive, they can prepare a new deed. They can prepare a deed that says that corrects this one and and has everything done correctly. And then record it. Um, If it's after the fact and now this person has died, then whoever took over the trust may have to go into court with what's called a Hegstat petition. And try and convince the court that this property was intended to be in the living trust, but they screwed up in the transfer. But please, Judge, could you order that it's actually in the trust? Because there's plenty of evidence of intent that would be put into the trust. So that's it for today. Going to be winding up. Again, I have seminar tomorrow and next Saturday morning. Go to my website. You can also email me at radio at lawbob.com with your questions or comments or to get a copy of my consumer guide. Till next week, this is Bob Bergman. Goodbye.
1: You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio.
0: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved.